The sermon I'm about to read to you this morning was prepared by Reverend Reuben Bradenhoff of the Mount Nazura Church in Western Australia. And he chose as text Ezra chapter 6, verses 19 through 22. And the uh, Quotations, the Bible quotations in the sermon this afternoon are actually from the New King James Version, but we will read the text from our uh, English Standard Version. Ezra 6, verse 19. On the fourteenth day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if there's ever a special occasion, we like to celebrate it with a meal. If someone graduates from school or has a significant birthday, or if there's a wedding, we get together for something to eat and drink, for food can be very festive. We see this in the Bible too. Think of all the feasts God gave his people. Several times a year, they get together for a festive meal in God's presence. Well, the Israelites in the days of Ezra had much to celebrate. So in our text, we see them share a holy meal. And what they rejoiced in was far bigger than a birthday or anniversary. For after decades in captivity, God's people could go back to their land and rebuild the temple. That's the story of this book and the one that follows, Nehemiah. The books of Ezra, Nehemiah, originally formed just one volume in the Hebrew Bible. And though Ezra isn't mentioned until chapter 7, he's thought to be its author probably of Chronicles too. About this Ezra, we know a few things. He was a priest in Aaron's line, and when he was in Persia, he was also a scribe in the royal court with access to many key documents, like that decree of Cyrus and that of Darius recorded in our chapter. Ezra certainly was a witness to momentous times in God's, to God, for God's people. For just as there had been a few waves of exile from Israel, so there were various returns to the land. First, Zerubbabel, together with about 42,000 people. Ezra would lead a second wave, and in the future there'd be more. God's people were coming back. When you compare them, this return from exile was a lot like the exodus from Egypt. For both saw the building of a house for God and the reinstitution of God's law among the people. Both saw challenges from surrounding enemies and the temptations to intermarry with unbelievers. And just like the Exodus had been centuries before, the return from the exile was a new beginning 
a time of revival for God's people. And yes, how better to celebrate this salvation than with a meal. This is our theme. The returned exiles joyfully celebrate the Passover. And we'll see first the deliverance that made it possible. Second, the purification that made it proper. And third, the joy that made it powerful. First then, the deliverance that made it possible. The book of two chronicles ends with Jerusalem in ruins. The temple destroyed, thousands dead in the streets, and many more taken into exile. It's not a pretty picture, but it's not all gloom and darkness either. For we are told that Judah's captivity will be for a set amount of time, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. There'd be 70 years of rest for the land, 70 years of purification for the people. It wasn't an indefinite sentence. There was hope for release. And then, if you keep reading in 2 Chronicles 36, you hear Cyrus declare his intention to build a house for God at Jerusalem and say that any Israelite was free to go home. Of course, a lot had happened since then. By the time we get to our text, that first decree is more than 20 years in the past. For the return from exile and also the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem had proceeded in fits and starts. Doesn't that happen so often with God's people when we carry out our labors for the Lord? Enthusiasm wanes after an initial burst of excitement. Worldly distractions emerge that keep us from progressing on the way. And even the opposition of unbelievers can deter us. We see some of these things in the book of Nehemiah, and then also in the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Though graciously delivered from her bondage, the Lord's people still needed to be prodded and coaxed along. At any rate, the reconstruction of the temple is begun in 536 B.C., a couple years after Cyrus set them free. We might criticize the people for having a short-lived enthusiasm, but let this be said, they knew it was a priority to get the temple back in working order. For they might have said, let's get those, those city walls rebuilt first, or let's get all this rubble cleaned off the streets. But this came first, God's temple and holy worship. Why? Even before it's completed, the foundation is laid, we read that the people begin to offer daily sacrifices at the temple site. It was enough to be on that holy ground. They also observed the holy feasts again, together with the required offerings. You can sense that the people have learned something in exile, that the whole reason we're alive, the reason that God has delivered us, is that we might worship Him. It's what comes first. Thus a reconstruction begins. The foundation stones are set. Masons and carpenters are brought in. Even wood is imported from Tyre and Sidon as Solomon had done before. No, it'd never be able to match the glory of Solomon's temple. But that mattered not. This would be a place to meet with the Lord. But it's then that troubles begin. There is local hostility because the temple wasn't just a temple. Such a project had political overtones. Surely going together with hopes that David's dynasty would also be restored. And such things didn't sit well with the surrounding peoples. 
those who'd come into the land while the Israelites were gone. And so they opposed the project and they successfully brought the whole thing to a halt for several years. When the Lord finally stimulates the people to resume their renewed efforts, draw the attention of the Persian officials, by this time the reign of Cyrus was over and Darius had succeeded him. Tatania was his, his governor in the province beyond the river, takes note of the rebuilding and reports back to the king. A search is made to see if the reconstruction of this temple had been authorized, as indeed it had. This was enough for Darius, who instructs the governor, let the work of this house of God alone. More than that, he ordered, let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes of, on the region beyond the river. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, and lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail. Then the king goes on to warn that any further opposition to the project will be punished severely. That's a stunning turn of events. No wonder the Israelites are joyful. We read in verse 22, For the Lord turned the heart of the king toward them. They looked behind the scenes and they recognized that this wasn't just a stroke of good luck or the result of lobbying. This was the Lord revealing his kingship over all, exercising his dominion for the good of his people. Like the Proverbs says in chapter 21, verse 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. The Lord turned the heart of Darius toward them. So this deliverance and restoration were possible from start to finish. Not only were the exiled people of God free to return to their land, not only were they permitted to rebuild the temple, not only did they receive federal funding for the project, but they even benefited from the royal protection. To see to it, to see it through to completion, because God was directing things. No detail was overlooked, no need unmet. And isn't that just like a picture of our salvation in Christ? The Lord has done it all. It began with his plan and promise to redeem sinners from condemnation. Then God worked that promise out, sending his only son to die on the cross. What's more, God gave his spirit so that we could believe in his son and receive the salvation he prepared. And then God also enables us to endure in faith, to withstand Satan's attacks and progress in holiness right to the end. So you see again, it's all the work of our God. His is the planning, His is the saving, the enabling and reviving, and finally the persevering. No detail overlooked, no need unmet. Praise God for His, His sovereign mercy. So it is that the temple is restored by the sixth year of Darius' reign and worship is fully restored. And in all their joy and thanksgiving, the Israelites have a festive meal. The descendants of the, cap of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. We know the people had already begun observing the feast, but this is something special. The author draws our attention to it. 
that now, after so long, the Passover is kept. Why is that significant? Just think of what the Passover was. It was a celebration of deliverance, a remembrance of salvation. Centuries ago, God had brought his people out of Egypt with signs and wonders. By his mighty hand and outstretched arm, the Lord had saved his chosen ones from misery with the atoning blood of the Lamb sprinkled on the doorpost. The Israelites had marked their deliverance with a meal, a simple meal, but a meal of great joy. And every year after that, the people would recall their astonishing deliverance by observing the Passover, eating and drinking. They would celebrate what the Lord had done. How fitting then that about a month after the temple is completed, the returned exiles have opportunity to share in the Passover once again. It commemorated redemption from Egypt but how could they not also think of their new deliverance from bondage and exile? As they ate and drank, they had to think of how the Lord had brought them out yet again, away from captivity, out of the darkness, back into the place of safety and peace. This was yet another miracle of God's grace to be remembered, to be exalted over. The events were different, but the pattern was clearly the same. Contrary to all expectations, beyond all deserving, at great cost to himself, the Lord delivers his people from their misery. And beloved, that again points us to the work of Christ. We read from, we read from Luke 22, part of the closing hours of our Savior's life. It's no coincidence that precisely now the Passover will be observed. The Lord would again moved hearts, the heart of Judas and the hearts of the leaders and Pilate. And he'd see to it that the lamb is slaughtered at just the right time. Jesus is with the disciples in the upper room with the Passover meal prepared before them. And he says, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This was something he wanted because it would so clearly reveal him as a promised Savior for the salvation of his people from bondage, his blood would be shed. This is what we, the Church of Christ, may remember and believe, not just when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but every day, every hour, that God has graciously delivered us from sin. He moved men and nations. He sent his Son and Spirit worth faith and repentance, done it all, so we can be forgiven, restored to him, and so we can live forever. We will now secondly see the purification that made it proper. The boys and girls among us know that it's good to wash your hands before eating, especially if you've been playing in the sandbox or petting the dog. You should give your hands a good scrub, being clean is a way to stay healthy. The Israelites knew that too, because we read that before they partake of this special meal, there's purification of the people and the priests. Such cleansing was necessary because they'd been so utterly defiled. One cause was how they'd spent up to 70 years living in a pagan land among the uncircumcised and unclean. 
But beside that was her sin. That's what uncleanness is really all about anyway. The stain of transgression, our moral contamination before God. You get dirty by sinning. And God knew how dirty they were. They needed 70 years of scrubbing. So now, before they'll partake of this special Passover meal, before the offerings will be made, they also need to be purified. We notice that the cleansing begins with the priests, those who will lead the worship, because sadly, they'd also led in disobedience. Back in the days of Hezekiah, for example, there were not enough priests to work in the temple because too many had, been disqualif- had disqualified themselves for service by their sin. But now we see the outworking of repentance beginning, as it should, with the leaders. We read in verse 20, that's the New King James Version, For the priests and Levites had purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean. The law said this would be done with water, washing the body and cleansing the priest's garments. But it wasn't just about being outwardly spotless. As the text says, they were ritually clean, ready for God's service, set apart from contamination in reverence for the holiness of God. In such a spirit, they'd be able to carry out the offerings. And it wasn't just the priests who prepared themselves for the Passover. There was a spirit of repentance that swept through all the people. Verse 21 says that the children of Israel who had returned from the captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. Some of the new population in Israel's land caused trouble, as we saw before, but others were converted to the true faith. So these two would partake in the Passover, For God's law always said that the strangers among you could participate in the feasts and worship, but not before they separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land. They needed to confess their uncleanness before the Lord, be circumcised, and renounce their idolatry. They're willing, and in this there's another encouraging development. The community of God's people is growing, even from the outside, in a contrite spirit, they'd all be ready to receive the forgiveness of their sin. Now, when we read in our passage about cleansing and purification, two points have to be made. First, this is a wonderful outworking of the people's revival. They knew themselves to be sinners before a holy God, and so they sought to be sanctified before Him. This was a genuine effort to be holy before God, not just outwardly, but inwardly. The people were putting off the contamination of sin, seeking atonement for transgression. And why? Because they wanted to be that holy people God called them to be, in fellowship with a holy God. The return from exile meant nothing unless they also returned to the Lord. They couldn't draw near to His presence unless they were purified. They couldn't eat that meal until they had washed their hands and consecrated their hearts. Beloved, that's always an essential part of our walk with God, having a true and humble knowledge of our sin and misery. If you don't realize your own sinfulness, and if you don't grapple with how unrighteous you are in yourself, you'll never seek cleansing 
and you'll never come to trust the God to trust in God's promise of forgiveness. So it's good that the priests and the people of Israel go through this process, for behind it is a real awareness of just how far a sinner stands from God, and behind it is also a real longing to come back. But a sec- second thing must be said as well. It sounds misplaced or even unkind to say it when our text describes such, a hopeful, such hopeful developments. But ultimately, these rituals of purification and these sacrifices of atonement don't measure up. They're not enough. They're at best a temporary fix. Did you notice our, ta- our text refers to the Passover lambs, plural? Not one was needed, but many, hundreds. And not just this year, but every year. When the Passover rolled around again, to say nothing of how day after day, morning and evening, the smoke of other sacrifices would ascend from this rebuilt temple, which again gets us looking ahead. When we look from our text to that day, when John the Baptist noticed Jesus approaching and declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb, the one, the only, the final, our Passover Lamb. For a sinful people, God would provide purification from sin, but it wouldn't be with water, nor with the blood of cows and sheep. It'd be with the very life of His Son. Think of that last Passover when Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying this is my body which is given for you it's given for you he says it's for the baby for the little boy for the teenage girl the student in college the husband and wife and widow it's for you likewise also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you This is real blood, effective blood, atoning blood, says the Lord. You've waited a long time for it, but this alone will cleanse you and make you holy so you can stand in the presence of God forever. What the people of Israel celebrated in shadows, we celebrate in the full light of the sun. Again, this is our privilege, not just at the Lord's Supper every two months, But every day of our lives, we are forgiven. And just as for the Israelites, purification is needed, we have been cleansed. But as the forgiven in Christ, holiness must be our ongoing concern, our continued project. Without holiness, no one will see God. The scriptures tell us, so James writes, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. If we will partake of God in Christ, if we will live in His grace, then we too must be busy with putting away every contamination of sin, all the filth of the nations. Someone who has truly truly received the forgiving grace of God in Christ will make this holiness His constant aim. Now, thirdly, we will see the joy that made it powerful. So was it like it once had been? Was this celebration like the liturgy in Solomon's day? 
when those tens of thousands of offerings were made at the temple? Well, if worship was a numbers game, this Passover wouldn't have made the cut. But as God tells us so often, it's not about the amount of our gift, nor about the quantity of our sacrifice, but it is the heart behind it. There wasn't as much pomp and plenty as before, but there was just as much purity and joy. This was the true glory of it, the spirit that made this worship so powerful. There is no beauty like the beauty of holiness. To underline the spirit of it, the author mentions joy two times in verse 22. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. And this was a festival which followed on the days after Passover for seven days. And it was seven days of joy. And again, summarizing the mood of the people, the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king toward them. This was a genuine celebration. It's easy enough to worship out of habit or superstition, to mouth words of the Psalms, and to stand up at the right time. But these people really wanted to be in God's presence. They rejoiced to be in the house, in his house like never before. There was an appreciation for the blessings of deliverance, God had given this joy. He had provided every reason for thanksgiving. And what was the effect? It was said of the strangers and foreigners among them, but it surely could be said of all the people that they came to worship in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. This is exactly what had been missing in Israel for so long. God had been far away, but it wasn't because God had moved. It was because the people hadn't looked for him. Now, however, there's a genuine love and a desire for God. They sought him, and they found him because they sought him with all their heart. What a joy this gave to their humble Passover celebration, knowing that God, their Savior, was near. That's the impulse that must continue to live among the people of God. A joyful seeking after the Lord. It should be even stronger now in Jesus Christ, for we learned of his greatness and nearness in even more powerful ways, seeing how God has saved us through his only Son. We have seen such great reason for joy, and even if we possess little, like the people of Israel, or if we have much to grieve, even then there is great joy in Christ, this calls all of us to have that new and holy desire to seek the Lord, God of Israel. Let us seek him while he may be found. Let us draw near to him that he may draw near to us. Let us celebrate his wonderful deeds of salvation. Yes, celebrate in the gift of Lord's Supper and in the gift of every day. For in Christ he is our God and our gracious Savior. Amen. Let us sing of Psalm 105, stanza.